Acts chapter 27 is our passage for this morning. And uh, if you're just joining us in the middle of Christmas season, you haven't been with us, our passage today might seem strange for a Christmas service, uh, but we're in Acts 27 today because we have been making our way through all of the writings of Luke uh, the entire year. And he wrote two books. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. If you put those two books together, there are 52 chapters. And so we're covering one chapter a week all year. We're on the 51st chapter because this is the 51st Sunday. And a week from today, uh, we will look at the final chapter in Luke's writings. But I think that you'll find that this passage uh, is fitting for this moment even though we won't explicitly be talking about the Christmas story. Um, there's a series of commercials on TV from an insurance company that I'm not going to mention the name of. Um, and the whole theme of those commercials is we've dealt with some pretty crazy situations. We've dealt with some crazy claims. And so we know how to handle whatever situation you might face. They say we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. And as we have journeyed from January all the way through this year, looking at all of the things that Luke wrote about Jesus' life and then the ministry of his disciples, and over the last several weeks we've looked at Paul's life and the things that he suffered, you might be tempted to come to this passage and say, Paul knows a thing or two because he's seen a thing or two. And Paul's able to conduct himself in this situation because of his experience. But I want you to realize that what we're going to see Paul do now is what he's been doing all throughout the book of Acts. He's going to have faith in the Lord and be at peace because he trusts in God. And what I want to talk to you about today is how Paul, on his last leg of his journeys, is on a sinking ship in the middle of a literal storm and he has peace. I want to talk to you about how you have a non-anxious presence on a sinking ship. While everyone around Paul is panicking, he remains calm. He remains non-anxious. And it's not because of his experience. It's not because of his personality. It's not because of his position. It's because of where his hope is placed the person he's placed his hope in. And I think this timing for us to look at this passage is incredibly important because Christmas is in six days. And oftentimes, um, when Christmas is just around the corner, instead of feeling overwhelming um, presence of joy and gratitude, we feel hurried and rushed, and we have a long list of things that we need to do and gifts that we have to wrap, and all of these places we're supposed to go and people we're supposed to send cards to. Oh yeah, we forgot about Christmas cards this year. We better run to the store and get those, and then we need stamps, and there's 27 people in line at the post office. And suddenly Christmas is not this celebration of peace and joy, but it's this mad dash. And right now, all around us, people are not maybe panicking, but they're frazzled because Christmas is around the corner. Plus, in addition to the regular Christmas rush, we're in what feels like the 17th year of a pandemic. 
Um, there's great uncertainty financially. There's great unrest politically. All of this is happening around us. There's plenty to be stressed or panicked about. And there's also plenty to mourn. Just recently, I talked to a friend about what he would be preaching about uh, for the Sunday before Christmas, and he told me the title of his message would be, It's a Blue Christmas. Because in their congregation, so many people have passed away, either to COVID or cancer this year. There's been death and tragedy all around them. And sometimes it's tempting for us to fall into the vein of the Christmas rush and being frenzied. And there's also the temptation to go into the other ditch where we make Christmas into a Hallmark movie, one of the thousands of Hallmark movies where everything is magical and the guy gets the girl or the girl gets the guy and it snows on Christmas and it's just amazing. I've never watched a Hallmark Christmas movie, but I think I probably just summed up most of them. (laughs) That's not reality. It's just sentimentality. We don't live in a Hallmark movie. We live here in the real world. And I want you to know that this Christmas, in the face of uncertainty and tragedy, of hurry and busyness, you can still celebrate the goodness of God and experience His peace without pretending that your circumstances aren't there, without burying your head in the sand, but in the face of the circumstances that surround you. I want you to know that like Mary and Joseph, and we have these manger scenes, these nativities that we see all around us. We have them here at the church, and it's this peaceful scene. But I I want to remind you that Mary and Joseph are giving birth to their son in makeshift quarters. They don't know what the next step is going to be. They will have to run for their lives from a king who wants to kill their son. They... They know that God is in this and he has a purpose, but they don't know how they're going to get from A to Z, what all of the steps in between will look like, but yet they are at peace. I want you to know that you can have peace and trust God. That's what I want to talk to you about today from the 27th chapter of Acts. I want to talk to you about how you can have peace on a sinking ship. Look at verses 1 to 3 of Acts 27 with me. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. Paul has been in custody for over two years. He's been awaiting his opportunity to plead his case before Caesar. It was his right as a Roman citizen to demand that. But he's had to wait all of this time. Now it's finally determined, okay, we will send Paul to Rome so he can face Caesar. And he's going to have to take this long journey. Verse 2. So entering a ship of Adramidium, we put the sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristocris, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. And this trip starts off like every Christmas journey, right? It's, hey, this is going to be great. We're going to see friends along the way. Uh, We're just taking our time. This centurion who has charge of Paul lets him visit friends that he has in these different cities. But then like every Christmas journey, it takes a turn for the worse when the circumstances and the weather turn against them. Things get difficult. The weather isn't favorable. It's harder for them. They're slowing down. 
and it puts them in a season where it's not safe to sail. Now, this is crazy to us because we live in a world where the majority of the time you can fly just about anywhere in the world any day of the week. It was a big deal when we shut down airports for the pandemic. For them, though, it was a regular occurrence that every year there was a time of year you just don't go sailing. There's a time of year you don't make this journey. And because they face some challenges and some difficulties along the way, they are getting closer and closer to the time that you shouldn't be sailing. And so look at verse 9 with me. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also. If by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and enter there. Now I want you to notice that they got a decision to make. The time to sail is passing. This is not the ideal moment to be making this journey. And Paul says, guys, I don't think it's a good idea for us to go. And they don't listen to him because they listen to who? They listen to the captain of the ship. And they listen to the desires of the majority. They don't listen to what Paul has to say because he's not the owner of the boat. He's not the captain. He's not a seafaring man. He's not an expert on these things and all. All the people want to get going. And so they decide to go ahead. They listen to the people in authority and they listen to the majority. And then look what happens in verse 13. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Now, I don't know if you can relate to this verse, but I sure can. Because there have been so many times when things have been rough and it's been hard and then there's like a little crack of light. And it's like, oh, okay, the tide is turning. Things are on my side now. I'm going to stop taking losses and we're going to make some progress here. You know, there's something turning in my favor. Verse 14. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurycladon. Uh, and it's a wind that they give a name to. It's bad news. There's a south wind blowing gently. It looks like everything's headed in the right direction. Finally, we're going to get moving. Finally, there's some traction. Finally, there's a, a breaking of the dawn. But then just very quickly, everything changes. And for the next several verses, what we see is there is effort after effort to save the ship. They throw all of the cargo over. They try to make it to an island. They wrap the boat in rope. They try to basically strap the boat together to keep it from falling apart. But they remain at the mercy of their circumstances. At one point it says they just let the ship drive itself. They're at the mercy of the wind and the waves. They have no control over their direction and where they're headed. And there are times in life where it feels like, okay, we're, we're headed in the right direction. Things are finally starting to turn in our favor. And then everything turns back again and we are absolutely not in control. We are just at the mercy 
of our circumstances. Now skip down to verse 22 with me. And Paul once again speaks, and now everybody's listening to what he has to say. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And, instead, God, and indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Paul says, Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told to me. They listened to those in authority and they listened to the majority while they were in the harbor. But when they found themselves at a loss, when they found themselves in a tempest and in dark, troubled waters, they were willing to listen to Paul. They were willing to listen to a voice of authenticity. Paul doesn't suddenly become captain of the ship. He is a prisoner in this situation. But suddenly his words have meaning to everyone on the ship because they are surrounded by uncertainty. And in times of uncertainty and calamity, people listen for authenticity and a non-anxious voice. In the easy times, in the harbor, we listen to the majority we listen to the authority, but in the troubled times, we look for authenticity. We look for the one who is not anxious, who is not panicking while everyone else is panicking. Now listen, if you are a church-going, evangelical Christian, this is a disorienting time in America. Because it used to be that Christians, people who profess to be Christians, who went to church somewhat regularly, at least on Easter and Christmas, that they were in the majority. And oftentimes they were in places of power and authority. If they didn't really believe it, they would say that they were so that the majority would elect them. But we are coming to a place very quickly where the majority of people in America don't claim to belong to any church where it's coming to the point where those in places of power and authority distance themselves from the church. And Christians feel this, this loss of a voice in our culture right now. And we're tempted to say, we've got to regain that power. We've got to regain that authority. We've got to regain the majority. I want you to see, believer, that Paul would have influence on this sinking ship because he was non-anxious. He didn't join the panic of the crew and the soldiers, he stands and says, let me tell you the truth. Let me tell you what the Lord has told me. And the term non-anxious presence, it, it comes from a book written by Edward Freeman. He was a rabbi and a therapist and counselor. And he figured out something in, in counseling families. He figured out that he, he used to kind of take the approach that probably most of us would. If, if I can just fix mom and dad... I can straighten out this family. But what he found is that oftentimes mom and dad were a lost cause. <laughs> or maybe dad could, 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 would listen, but mom wouldn't. And what he figured out was, instead of trying to work from the top down, he just needed to find one sane person in the family. If there was one sane person in the family. Now, some of you are like, our family, we are lost. There's not one sane person 
in our family. But if he could find one sane person in the family, he would work with that person to help them become this non-anxious presence in the home. And that injection of a non-anxious presence, that injection of someone who kept their cool would change the entire makeup of the family. Even if it was the youngest child, even if it was the teenager, even if it was the mom, not the dad, or the dad, not the mom. If he could find one person who would be that non-anxious presence, it would turn things around and bring healing and peace to the family. And friend, I want you to know that We don't have the power to change the world. We don't have the authority and we may not be in the majority. But if God can work in us to make us a non-anxious presence, to make us a people of peace, we don't need to be in the positions of power and authority to bring about change. That is often absolutely ineffective. We simply need to be the healthy element in an unhealthy system. Paul has no power, no authority on this ship. And at first, no one listens to him. And there are times that his life is in danger. You read through this chapter, you see there's at one point the soldiers are thinking, we should just kill all the prisoners, that way they can't escape and swim for shore. He has no power, no authority. His life is in danger. There are people who are against him. But he ends up being the voice that leads them to safety. He ends up being the voice that the centurion and the captain of the ship listen to. And how is that possible? How is it that Paul could become that voice? Well, for Paul, the moment was he became this voice of the promise. God appeared to him and told him, you are going to stand before Caesar like I have ordained, as I have purposed. He gave Paul this promise that he could cling to. He says, no one on the ship is going to die. God told him no one would perish. He had this promise he could cling to. Now, God hasn't given me any specific visions or promises. And our takeaway should not be, okay, we need some new prophetic vision that we can share with the world. By the way, in the face of uncertainty, those are super popular. But a lot of people that in the face of the uncertainty of the pandemic and recent political unrest, that they've had some really radical prophecies about what's going to happen. Right now, just a couple miles from my home, there is a tractor trailer that has a website that you can go to and read all about some prophecies about things that are going to happen in our political system. And people eat that up because in a moment of uncertainty, we want certainty. But we don't need to create certainty for people. We don't need to make up promises. We don't need to make up a revelation or a vision because what we have in our hands is the revelation of the living God. We have the promises of God to his people. And God didn't appear to me last night in some vision or some dream, but he used Paul to write in this book that all things will work together for the good for those who love him. He gave us the promise that Stephanie talked about earlier, that he is coming back one day, that he has gone to prepare a place for us, that in the meantime, lo, he is with us always, even unto the ends of the earth. We don't have to create promises and certainties for people. God has already given them to us.
passage ministered to me this week because there's been several things that I felt strongly called to that haven't gone smoothly, that haven't been easy, that haven't gone well. And there have been times that a south wind has started to blow, and I thought, all right, things are finally starting to change. We're starting to, to see uh, the, the tide change only to then be smacked in the head with a new headwind. But I'm reminded this week that the Lord will bring it to pass. Perhaps not like I was expecting, not like I was hoping, not as easily as I'd like, not as I would have drawn it out, but he will bring it to pass in his way. In fact, that's kind of his specialty. That's what Christmas was. It was the Son of God showing up, not like you'd think, not in a palace, but a manger, not in the big city of Rome where the seats of power were, but in a small little village called Bethlehem. Not to the rapturous singing of imperial choirs and marches, but to shepherds. And what we've seen again and again throughout our study of Jesus' life and the work of the disciples over this past year is that God continues to bring about His purpose and plan in spite of whatever circumstances and challenges present themselves. And often God uses those very circumstances to bring about the plan He had all along. Friedman's book where he talks about being a non-anxious presence is titled... A failure of nerve. And the reason for that title is because he, he sees all around him in, in families and in churches that there are people that they say they believe something, but then when the, the going gets tough or there's opposition or the majority doesn't like it, they have a failure of nerve. They lose their nerve in the face of circumstances and pressure. And what I hope you have seen over these last many weeks is that Paul's faith was not just real in the temple and in the synagogue or when he was gathering around a table with a group of friends to talk about Jesus, but also when he was whipped and beaten and arrested and tried. It was real on the sinking ship. It was real in the tempest and the storm. It was real on an island. By the way, it's, it's in the next chapter but they get off of this boat and they swim to shore and they build a campfire and Paul's throwing wood on the fire and a snake jumps out and bites him. And if I was Paul, I mean, I might have been like, all right, I'm cool with everything up till this point, God. Like that, come on. I make it the shore, I'm around the fire and then a snake bites me? And Paul just shakes the snake off into the fire. God once again providentially saves his life. Paul's faith faced many trials. And it was real whether he was stranded or shipwrecked or snake bit. And this morning, I hope you don't walk away hearing me say, you need to believe harder or trust more. But rather, you'll walk away amazed at the object of Paul's faith. 
Because his confidence and hope is not because his faith was so great, but because the object of his faith is so great. And maybe you're here today and you're just barely holding on. You'll want to believe, but you don't believe. You're struggling to believe. And friend, let me tell you, don't focus on making your faith stronger. Just focus on the one who you believe in. Because he is a rock and his gospel is true. It was a joy to baptize Krista this morning. I remember the first couple Sundays that Krista attended our church. Maybe the second or third time she was here, she, she came forward to talk to me, and she, she wanted me to know that, like all of us, that she was a sinner. And she asked, is it okay for me to attend here? And I said, absolutely. Because we believe that God can change anyone. Because he died for everyone. And there were times that Krista came and I could see that God was working. And times that Krista came and I wanted to see God change her life, but that's not, that's not my power. But because I know the gospel has that power, because I know Jesus has that power, I can have confidence in him to make that difference in her life, in your life, in my life. Not because my faith is so great or because I'm so good, but because the one I believe in is so great and so good. Here's what I want you to hear. The God that Paul served, the Christ that he preached, the Jesus we celebrate at Christmas is worthy of and able to support such a faith, a faith that is real in the temple, in the synagogue, in the storm. The promises of the Bible, the creeds of the faith, they are all substantive enough, strong enough to hold you in the face of the most difficult of circumstances. In life crises, in uncertainty, in hardship, in tragedy, in celebration, and in grief. He is able to hold you. This truth is strong enough to provide peace in the worst of storms. How do we remain a non-anxious presence on a sinking ship in the face of wind and waves? It's not because our faith is so strong but because the one we believe in is.